Good morning and welcome to our third series in our adult Bible class. We're talking about the rise and falls of Joseph. This is the third part in our series about the life of this character from the book of Genesis named Joseph. You can describe him in three different ways. If you look over the course of his whole life, you can call him a dreamer, a prisoner, and a ruler. Just as a little bit of an overview for the past two weeks, we talked about how Joseph goes through many uh, risings and fallings in his life. He will prosper in the house of his father, and then uh, circumstances will uh, turn bad really quickly, and he will be uh, exiled from his father's house. He'll be sold into slavery and uh, be a prisoner. Then, uh, when he's serving in the house of Potiphar, again, he'll rise to power. He'll be given authority and influence, and God will be with him. But then he's falsely accused, and he uh, falls again. And his falls aren't necessarily due to some sort of wickedness or sin. He's not much of a deceptive character. We don't see huge moral failings, but we do see that he's naive and he's foolish. He doesn't plan far ahead. He's not very strategic. He'll often do things that you'll think, Joseph, do you see how people are going to react to that? The consequences are not going to be good if you do that. And he'll just kind of rush ahead and foolishly do something that we know is going to turn out bad for him. He doesn't have a lot of foresight. We also saw last week that um, there are two stories told back to back in the story of Joseph that might seem at first like they have uh, no place together, that they don't really fit together. We see this whole story of Joseph's older brother Judah uh, making these huge moral failings. And we, we see that he sleeps with his own daughter-in-law because he thinks that she's a prostitute and he doesn't know it. I mean, that's... That's how bad Judah gets. But meanwhile, Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife, and he doesn't succumb to that temptation. He resists it, and he's faithful even though he suffers for it. So what we're seeing throughout the book of Genesis is that the four older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, aren't doing well. We see them have moral failings. We see uh, them making mistakes, and they're kind of on a downward trajectory, while Joseph is uh, showing his righteousness and his moral character and his integrity, and he is facing undeserved suffering. We don't really see a lot of suffering on their end, these four older brothers. Uh, we see that they sin, and they actually do things that are evil in God's eyes, but Joseph is doing the right thing but suffering for it, and sometimes suffering in spite of his righteousness. So those stories are placed together to show and highlight, wow, Joseph, man, he's doing the right thing even though he suffers for it. Even though he's uh, falsely accused of crimes he never committed, he's still doing the right thing. This week we are moving uh, to a, an, another famous part of Joseph's stories where he interprets uh, dreams for a uh, for two different Egyptian officials. But as we move into this story, I, I want to kind of flesh it out and make sure that we see intricate details that might show us how God is providing for Joseph, even in uh, the midst of great difficulty. God is providential. He is 
overabundant and generous to Joseph and perfectly timing details so that Joseph is in the right place at the right time. Um, and, and when we see those intricate details of this story, we begin to see what God is up to. We're not looking at these details just for mere information. We want to know what God is up to in Joseph's life so that we see what God is up to in our lives. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 40. I want to walk through this story verse by verse so we see what God is doing. First, uh, we, we hear or we read this in Genesis chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and baker of the king of Egypt offended their master. That is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and Joseph attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, we'll speculate in a moment as to why or how these two officials offended Pharaoh, but for now, I want you to notice a few details that often go unnoticed. These positions of the chief baker and the, the chief cupbearer of the king of Egypt are not just like famous chefs. They aren't like Anthony Bourdain or R Rachel Ray. They are officials that play a really important role in the economy of Egypt. The cupbearer's role is not just to know how much wine is in the king's cellar. The baker's role is more than just knowing how much bread is in the pantry. These two men are officials over the whole economy of food. It's like an ancient version of the FDA. These men were in important and powerful and influential positions, higher ups in the Egyptian court. And that means that these political officials, because these were political and economic officials, they offended their master, their fellow politician and leader, Pharaoh. Now, obviously, Pharaoh isn't just like an elected uh, politician. He is the king, the monarch. Uh, but that still means we're, we're seeing a political scandal. We're seeing a political issue in the Egyptian empire. Also, I want you to notice that they are put in custody in the house of someone called the captain of the guard. In chapter 39, we found out that that is Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. So when Joseph is put in charge of this prison by the warden of the prison, he is under the authority of Potiphar. And we find out in verse 4 that the captain of the, of the guard, that's, that's Potiphar, assigned these two very important political officials to Joseph. And Joseph was the one who attended them. This is kind of crazy when you think about it because Potiphar put Joseph in prison in the, in the first place for a, under a false allegation that he had abused Potiphar's wife. So the fact that Potiphar is still doing this might be a tiny hint from the authors that Potiphar knew that Joseph was innocent. Why would you reward someone who you thought slept with your wife? You wouldn't do that unless you knew deep down that Joseph was innocent. This is actually strikingly similar to Pilate who knew that Jesus was innocent, but still crucified him under false allegations. Joseph, again, is suffering, even though Pilate, excuse me, Potiphar knows that he's innocent. 
Now, we find out that these two officials, these two very politically important figures, have a dream on the same night, and they're both very disturbed. When Joseph came to the officials the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and he put the cup, and I put the cup in his hand. Now, we already see here that Joseph is having compassion on fellow prisoners of the king. He asks, why are you so sad? But these Egyptian officials are, uh, easily could have been his enemies. Think about if you are imprisoned under Pharaoh's authority, you probably have an anger at anyone in charge of you, anyone in higher up positions, because you're suffering, you're innocent, and all these people are going on their merry way, uh, even though... Uh, you haven't been vindicated, and you're suffering and you're languishing while they're doing just fine. But he still shows compassion and love for them. He can tell these aren't normal dreams. They must be really bothering uh, them. And so he hears they have dreams, and his first response is to interpret them. Again, don't just go by, don't just read these verses and move along to uh, J Joseph's interpretations. Think about this. Joseph doesn't show any sign of bitterness towards God. He instantly says, interpretations belong to God. That's his first thought when he sees the, that these two men have had these dreams. He thinks, uh, these need to be interpreted. They came to you from God, and I'm go, going to interpret them on God's behalf. I mean, he doesn't say, man, talking about dreams got me in trouble the last time I talked about them. I am keeping quiet. I'm not going to uh, get involved in this situation. He knows that these dreams came from God and that dreams from God need to be interpreted. And so he's there. He's had dreams from God himself, and he sees it as his responsibility to interpret them. And so he explains what it means. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in the dungeon. Now, we've said this a number of times, but we are already seeing Joseph displaying newfound wisdom, foresight, and strategy. The last time that Joseph told dreams, it got him sold into slavery. It ruined his life. But now he's interpreting a dream, and he wants it to save his life. He's strategically pleading for his innocence. He knows he's giving this guy a good interpretation. He knows that this is going to end up well for the uh, cupbearer, but he wants to use that and, and plan ahead of time and tell him, I have done nothing to deserve this. He knows that he's going to be restored to his position of great influence, and he wants to be remembered. He pleads to this man, do not forget me. 
Now, the baker overhears this great interpretation, and he thinks, well, I, I want something like that. So he asks Joseph for an interpretation as well. The chief baker sees that Joseph had given a favor, favorable interpretation. He says to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on the pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, in three days, Pharaoh is going to deliver two judgments. But one thing is going to happen, and that is justice. God decreed through these two men dreams, and those dreams, if rightly interpreted, will end up in justice for them. And that means that both will receive what is their due. The innocent man will be redeemed. He will be set free and restored to his position because he is innocent. He will be vindicated, but the guilty man will die. God applies one thing, and that is justice, but the justice applies in different ways to different situations. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to speculate for a second. What could have led to this situation? What could these two men have done that would offend Pharaoh so badly? And you might think, well, I mean, ancient kings, they could do whatever they want. They could, they could pull off crimes with impunity. So it doesn't really matter what, what they did. Kings could be upset. They could be offended over nothing. We don't even need to ask that question. But I think we find out later in this story that this pharaoh, this Egyptian ruler, is very just and compassionate. We see how he deals with Joseph and Joseph's family. And so this pharaoh is presented in a very positive light. He seems like a good ruler. So it would be inconsistent for this, uh, this story to depict him as really unjust and then later uh, really just. I think... We need to ask the question, what could, what could have happened to this pharaoh that he would see the death penalty would be a just punishment for this crime? Now, I think some scholars have actually come up with a, a very convincing story to fill in the overall uh, narrative that we're reading about. One scholar has suggested that there was a plot to overtake or kill the pharaoh. Remember that both officials are very high up in the Egyptian government. Remember that they are both in charge of food in some way or another. So some scholars suggest that one of them was plotting to kill Pharaoh by poisoning him with his food, which makes sense because the Pharaoh puts both of them in custody because he couldn't have known which one of them tried to poison him. Right? If you have a cupbearer who's responsible for drinks and you have bakers which are responsible for food, then you don't know uh, which one of them was trying to poison you. And they both stood to gain from Pharaoh's demise. They're both high up officials. They're both elites. They're both high up in the court. So they stood to gain if this Pharaoh was killed. They're both put in custody while Pharaoh investigates which one of them truly committed the crime. And when he finds out, he uses his birthday as a kind of celebration. He vindicates the cupbearer and the guilty verdict is given to the baker. Justice is done. We see on the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief 
cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of, of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup in the Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled, that is executed, the chief baker just as Joseph, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. But here's the bad ending to the story. Everything seems to be going Joseph's way. He interpreted the dreams. He was right there at the right time. And then he, he gives this good news to the cupbearer. He gives the bad news to the baker. And things are all going to, according to the plan. Pharaoh finds out who really committed this crime. And one, the innocent man is vindicated. The guilty man is killed. We see justice in this situation. But then, in verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Joseph still faces injustice. He's forgotten. The one thing he asked for was to be remembered. He begged the cupbearer to remember him. He said, I am innocent. I should still be back home with the land of my people, the Hebrews, but in addition to that, I've done nothing wrong while in Egypt, and yet I continue to be punished. Please just remember me. But Joseph is forgotten. Now, you might think that this story shows God's lack of care for Joseph, right? Joseph does everything right in this story. Joseph says interpretations belong to God. He doesn't say anything special about himself. And he thinks that when dreams come from God, they need to be interpreted. God provided him in that very moment to give good news to the cupbearer. If anything, shouldn't God reward him in this situation? Shouldn't he, shouldn't he say, Joseph, you were so faithful. Uh, you will be remembered. You'll be vindicated. And you will not be forgotten and languish in, pri in prison. But. God's providence is even more timely than we think. Because we know that this baker is executed because of this offense against Pharaoh. And let's say, just for the sake of the story, you don't have to agree with it, but let's say that the baker did plot to kill Pharaoh. There was some sort of attempted murder. Now that the baker is dead... There is a spot open in the high court. There is a vacancy. And if we keep reading this story, we know that a massive famine, a massive shortage of grain is going to plague Egypt. It's going to plague the surrounding nations around Egypt for years. In other words, there is going to be a bread shortage right when the Egyptian empire doesn't have a chief baker, someone who administers bread. And right at that time, at the bottom of Pharaoh's dungeon is a man who can interpret dreams and know the future that God reveals to him before it happens. He also happens to be a wise and discerning man who would be really good at dealing with a crisis, maybe even a famine. Perhaps this open vacancy is not only a matter of God's justice against the baker's sin. Perhaps this vacancy in the head baker position gives Joseph the perfect opportunity to oversee this bread crisis. Wouldn't it be really good 
to have a guy who could know the future to be in charge of a country in the midst of a famine. The baker's death and Joseph's ascension as the right-hand man to Pharaoh is actually going to save Egypt and the surrounding nations. So we might think right now, oh my gosh, Joseph is still in prison. God didn't reward him. God didn't bring him out of his suffering. That, doesn't, that, that looks like God is not showing mercy to Joseph. But here's the thing. If Joseph is patient, if he waits a little bit more time, he can be put into a greater position than he could imagine. All Joseph wants is to get out of prison, to be vindicated from these false allegations. But what God is going to give Joseph is so much greater than that. The rise of Joseph to a position of power is not just for his own sake, but for the sake of others. When he rises to that position of authority and influence, he is going to not only act on his own behalf, but also for all the Egyptians. He's going to save them from famine. And he is not able to do that outside of a position of authority. So God makes him wait a little bit more. God allows him to suffer a little bit more so that at just the right time, he could save many lives. Now, later in the history of Israel, there's this woman who is named Esther who is chosen to be the queen of Persia. There's an evil man named Haman who plots to kill all of the Jews. And Esther's cousin Mordecai tells her that she needs to plead to the king on behalf of the Jews to save them. And he says to Esther these very famous words, Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Which means that centuries after the life of Joseph, there is a woman who becomes queen right at the time where there is a crisis for her people so that she can act on their behalf. Joseph was in exactly the same position as Esther. God does this kind of thing. Perhaps Joseph came to his royal position for such a time as this. This is what God does. God puts the right people in the right positions at the right time to save many lives, to act on behalf of people who are suffering. That's what God does. He's done it many times. We see it throughout scripture. But here's the thing. He makes these people in positions of influence and power, he allows them to suffer. The direction of their life is not from uh, glory and honor and power and influence to suffering. It's that through suffering, they receive glory. Through difficulty, God puts them in the right position at the right time. Through trials and temptations and incredible obstacles to their flourishing, God then, on the other side, rewards them, vindicates them, shows justice to them, puts them in the right position at the right time. And that's the trajectory of Jesus in every single follower of Jesus. We're going to go through this life and suffer dearly. We're not going to be able to even fathom how much suffering we'll go through before it happens. 
If we really follow Jesus and really sign up to be a disciple of his, he says that we're going to pick up our cross and follow him. What he's saying is you're going to suffer for my name. If you are faithful to me, if you do what I tell you to do, the world is not always going to respond with applause. You're not always going to be materially or physically blessed because of that. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. But on the other side of that suffering, you'll be raised from the dead. You'll be given a new body that is immortal. You'll be in God's presence forever and see him as he is. That is glorious. But it only comes on the other side of suffering. This life is short. It's difficult. It brings us challenges that we never would wish upon our worst enemies. But that's what we deal with in this life. But in scripture, we see this pattern over and over and over again that through suffering, God glorifies his people on the other side of it. He doesn't give us an exemption from it. He doesn't give us an escape around it. He doesn't promise that we'll never suffer. He actually promises that we will suffer. But on the other side of suffering, there's glory. There's honor and redemption and vindication and resurrection. That's what God promises. It's only through suffering that we experience the glory of God on the other side. And that's the good news in the story of Joseph. 